The following is a production by Cutting to the Chase Podcast. comes to Errol Spence Jr., you know a lot about him, or what, what's your thoughts on him, or Porter for that for that matter? Most latest fight that I had seen of Spence prior to the Porter fight, I mean, at least the most memorable one that I can, oh no, no, I, I was going to say him versus Kel Brook, but I did see him versus um, Mikey Garcia, and that was an interesting fight because uh, going into it, Mikey Garcia was, he was a person that was seriously like highly regarded. And it was, it was kind of to the point where you were thinking like, okay, Mikey Garcia, he's someone special. Right around the same time when uh, people were thinking Errol Spence is something special. And I love those kinds of fights whenever you get uh, two people who you're you're both gauging as as someone who's, you know, going to be at the top of the sport. When you get those two uh, together, then it's one of those rare situations in the sport where it actually answers a question because one of them fails and the other succeeds. Now, of course, if you get somebody like Manny Pacquiao versus Juan Manuel Marquez, <laughs> There isn't a clear uh, a clear business victor. And I mean, that's good too, because then it's just like, all right, you'll have rematch, rematch, rematch until uh, doomsday. But um, whenever you have like a, a fight like that, where it's just like you got two guys that you're really looking at and you are impressed by their previous victories... How are they going to, you know, do against each other? Now, that was a huge lead up to uh, to me getting to this point that, that the uh, the fight itself ultimately ended up being a wash, where Errol Spence completely dominated Mikey Garcia, and it was one of those interesting situations where going into the fight, it's it's hard to not be blinded by the hype. You know, before I was talking about objectivity, it's always a thing. Hype is always going to be there to to kind of muddle your brain. And you might be thinking, oh, well, I, you might be objectively thinking on your best day that Errol Spence is incredible. And, you know, he's... He's this like gutsy, gritty fighter that's that's just going to he just wants it. You know, he, he has that hunger and he, he gets in there and he's a bruiser, but he also has style. He has the fundamentals understood as well. You know, you, you have all these th- these things in your mind that are objective truths about a fighter that uh, you're looking at. And then you look at another fighter where you're thinking like, oh, yeah, he's really flashy. Um, Like, 
that that one counter that he had in that one fight where it knocked the guy out, you know, that was incredible. You might be saying little like snapshot moments like that, that kind of like raises you up that like your opinion up that high on that other guy. And it's just kind of like, okay, with Errol Spence, he had this, uh, this foundation built up where you're seeing all these objective aspects about him that are proving his greatness. And then you have this other guy who had really explosive, flashy things that that you remember those snapshot moments and you think that they're right up there with like an Errol Spence type fighter. Ultimately, what happened was that, uh, yeah, the the foundation that you saw that was gradually built up with Errol Spence ultimately beat the flashier, more prettier looking style out of just the sheer will and determination to, to become victorious. That's an aspect of the sport where it's like, uh, anytime you see a fighter showboating, it doesn't mean anything really. It's just, they're just trying to rile up the crowd. They're trying to gain a a hype train about them where it's something memorable about a fight where a person after they saw that fight, oh, did you see whenever he was, uh, he was pointing at the guy, pointing at the crowd, doing this in the middle of the fight, (laughs) things like that, that mean absolutely (laughs) nothing, but it gets the conversation going and it's just like, oh, that was sick, dude. You know, you get... You get the conversation talking about that one fighter just because of the flashiness that a- absolutely is zilch as far as value in the actual like fighting standards. Thing I liked about Spence and that I've hinted at right now is that he he had those respectable, honest fundamentals that he'd bring into every fight. And you always have to sober yourself up after seeing one of those flashy moments. And just think, you know, if you're choosing one guy or the other guy, try and again, this is this is my gospel. Be objective about it. Whenever you're choosing one guy or the other guy and you're trying to be objective, just think about all the times that there was that white noise of the of the fighter being flashy or the the fighter just taunting or say like Broner having like skyrocketing confidence and brashness outside of the ring where it creates this like <laughs> this myth and really what you got to do is you got to look at the punches themselves you got to look at the movement you got to look at you know uh what style that that fighter has versus you know a style that might be the kryptonite toward that style and uh at that point you know if you're trying to predict fights you know, this is even getting this is getting beyond the whole aspect of I'm a fan of that fighter. Uh, if you're actually trying to predict fights, then and and you're not choosing with your heart. <laughs> if you're trying to predict fights, you got to actually look at the the specifics, the nuances of a fighter, because um, if you're if you're leaving details out in your own mind, you're not likely going to make the right prediction going into a fight where you got 
both fighters who are hyped up, but hyped up for different reasons. Talk about the jaw unboxing. If you have like a square line jaw, you can take a hit. You can take a hit to the head. And I, I don't know. I don't understand the physics about it. But if you have kind of like a, a triangular type face and your your chin is more pointed, the uh, I guess that the like the shock wave that goes into your chin is more able to uh, sustain that reach your brain. Yeah. No, if you're, if you have like a pointy chin, if you have a pointy chin, then I guess like uh, if, if there's a punch that hits you in the chin, it, it more gets uh, uh, shock waved into your brain. And if you have a square line jaw, then it gets more absorbed. So it's, it is kind of strange to think about certain things like that when you want to believe that the sport itself is like, uh, you know, you do one thing and it's it's either you, you succeed or you fail. But like uh, whenever you get certain like physique uh, aspects in there, it definitely throws a whole wrench in the whole idea that, well, hey, one thing worked for the other guy. It must be working with this guy, too. But everybody's bodies are different. Everybody's minds are different. Uh, styles are different. Flaws, strengths, you know, everything is completely nuanced and really acute where, I mean, that's what I think I, I love the most about the sport. That in so trying to uh, study a fighter you have to also study things that you wouldn't think about studying. Like say Amir Khan, he, he'd get knocked. He, he had great fundamentals. And I mean, he was again, talking about the whole New Yorker thing. He was a silver medalist in the Olympics and like, uh, he had incredible speed, incredible athleticism, new, you know, the, the sport's called the sweet science. He knew the sweet science, the fundamentals of the sport. But the problem with the Khan is that he had a triangular-like head. <laughs> and his, his chin was susceptible to getting knocked out. Now, that's kind of tragic, you know, if you think about it. You, you get into the sport, your art with the sport ends up being fantastic but you're only dealt the cards that you're dealt you know sometimes like little stupid things like just having a triangular like head <laughs> can determine whether or not you're yeah, gonna exactly. win a fight <laughs> i was watching so when I was, when I was watching in fact it was funny i was actually watching porter spence like this morning at like 1 30 a.m i was yeah. like let me throw on youtube and there it was it was great um but i don't know if it was the actual knockdown or maybe it was a different punch because i remember there was one there was at least one instance where porter takes a punch but he doesn't mm -hmm. go down he stays up but they show the replay of the punch going in it was a great replay i mean you could just you know you could just see like yeah i'm just like holy shit like the way the punch just goes and just the, the way the right. the physics of it all plays out but uh yeah they were talking about how you know you're typically going to go down but he was able mm -hmm. to keep himself up and fascinating to watch that slow replay capture that entire punch and just everything after that yeah and so taking a shot like that it reminds me of the uh 
there was a moment whenever I stood up for my my chair and I was completely hyped, like thinking like it, it, see the sport occasionally brings this out of me where I'm just like I turn into complete animal mode (laughs) where I jump up out of my seat. My eyes are like wide and I'm just like, you know, waiting for what's going to happen after because it's whenever you get like a moment like that, it literally is like watching a car crash. And so the moment that I'm referring to is uh, when um, Shane Mosley landed huge hook against uh floyd mayweather right on the chin floyd mayweather took it and everybody was in an uproar commentators were going crazy but i mean the whole time i was thinking is he going to get knocked down because here you have a fighter who's never been knocked down before and that moment was just kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> you have this like emotional outburst. And the thing is, when when I rewatched it, and I, I rewatched it like a couple times uh, over the years, Floyd Mayweather's legs, his calves, like this dude was, he should have been on the canvas. He should have been down. But if you look at him, it's it's like he's he's doing a squat with like 400 pounds and you see his legs that like his legs are bent his knees are up and he's somehow able to sustain himself from going all the way down and he just specifically does a squat up gets himself back up and and moving and not only that being able to sustain that punch and uh, not go on the canvas. He has another prize fighter in front of him who's one of the best prize fighters in the world. Now, granted, Floyd Mayweather was the pound-for-pound great. You have a guy who's at that top echelon after you. Your body's failing on you. It's hard as hell just to bring your gloves up to your chin to block punches, your legs are not cooperating. I mean, this guy, like, that was one of the moments where I was just like, I was I was so blown away by Mayweather and being able to do that. And granted, this wasn't in real time. In real time, I was just like, Mosley, put him down, put him down. <laughs> you know? But looking back on it, actually having like, you know, a clinical look over what happened and and seeing that Floyd Mayweather was able to get past that situation and go on to not get knocked down. It goes into the whole idea of, you know, what is your mind thinking? Getting into the whole animal aspect of when you're in a fight and your mind is telling you you need to you need to not fall down. You know, just thinking about that that really like base aspect of the brain where your brain wants nothing more than just to go down. And here right. this this guy was somehow able to summon up his body to be to the point where he gets rocketed by this huge punch. 
right on the chin, gets down into like a squatting position after getting punched to the fucking chin and is able to get right back up standing and able to move out and get into fleeing mode, retreating mode. Now, see, a lot of people got on Floyd Mayweather's case because, okay, he he just runs all the time. You know, that's that was the common consensus, the narrative of Floyd Mayweather. He's always just running, he's running, he's running. You know, that's kind of like the simple take that most casuals would say. But, I mean, this dude was a complete master. It's like, you might hate a guy, but when you see an incredible art you can't hate the art <laughs> you know like you said people would say that he would run or was he considered a i don't know this is this might be completely wrong but was he considered by some to just dodge certain fighters at certain points or oh yeah yeah see whenever you think about the term boxer if you don't watch the sport you might just think of it synonymous to fighter But what a boxer actually is, is a boxer stays outside the range of punches, dictates when he's going to strike back after an opponent has missed a punch. This is very metaphorical to how Floyd Mayweather ran his career. As a fighter, you know, he was so amazing at being able to assess risk. And when he's in the ring... He's able to assess what he needs to do in order to get a victory. Very, very, like, uh, cerebral, heady. That carried over into his uh, business acumen where, yeah, he dodged. He, there is no doubt in my mind that he decided to run the clock out for Manny Pacquiao because he knew that Manny Pacquiao was an athletic fighter. The more the time goes by, the older his legs get. The more fights this guy has, the more he tortures his body in training. The more times he tortures his body in training, in a way that I don't torture my body in training, granted, every fighter on that top echelon tortures their body. But, I mean, Manny Pacquiao, like... Just getting into the whole mentality of Floyd Mayweather, it was always, what can I do to win? It was always just that clear cut. And yeah, he he chose the right fighter for the right instance. Yeah, he was a huge aspect when it came down to the stalling of uh, Manny Pacquiao. And I mean, hell... Floyd Mayweather was a natural politician when it came down to it. Natural politician, natural businessman, natural performer, and yeah, natural boxer. I think of Floyd Mayweather as a renaissance man. I was just thinking the business aspect, because like, you know, you could say, oh, he dodged this or he knew what he was doing, but that's part of his business. Like he's a he's a multi-millionaire for a reason. He's a champion for a reason. Where do you rank him like all time? If you're talking about pound for pound, like the the like the standard discussion of historical pound for pound or back when I was saying that when a judge watches a fight he's either going to be favoring damage or he's going to be favoring punch output that dichotomy exists for the the judges 
the dichotomy exists for pound-for-pound uh, pound greatness as well when it comes down to, uh, say, for instance, um, certain nuances to a fighter's career. Floyd Mayweather ultimately took the fight with Manny Pacquiao, but there's an asterisk because they were old men by the time they fought, and uh, Mayweather's style uh, more befitted old age than Manny Pacquiao's style befitted his old age. There are asterisks on so many Floyd Mayweather fights so if you're taking a look at record, there are asterisks on tons of fights. So if you're to judge Mayweather on pound for pound greatness, if you're if you're looking at the names themselves, they might seem impressive, but you also kind of have to look at the asterisks. Now see the the flip side. If we're going to look at uh, another fighter who has had a bunch of names. You also got to take a look at, uh, you know, were those names in their prime when he fought them? How relevant was the name that he fought against to determining his pound-for-pound uh, pound greatness? And so um, whenever it gets into that whole question, like, even though I say that it's... It's kind of like a foregone conclusion that uh, Sugar Ray Robinson is the pound for pound king. I mean, as much as I want to, I want to have like a nuanced take on it, and I want to look at the guy's whole career. I mean, I'm I'm not going to be seeing all of his fights because not all of his fights were recorded. He was from a time when you know video capture quality wasn't as great as it could be. When you look at the names themselves, incredibly impressive. And whenever you look at Floyd Mayweather's names, incredibly impressive. It's kind of a foregone conclusion that you're going to choose Sugar Ray Robinson because of the legendary names. But we have a certain clinical objectivity to view Floyd Mayweather's fights because of the video footage quality because of every fight being uh, nuanced to death, as much as I, I don't want to be a cheerleader for any fighter, I think that like uh, Floyd Mayweather kind of, he deserves a lot of his greatness that he's, he's touted. <laughs> because, you know, looking back on like Sugar Ray right, Robinson, yeah. you might not have the clinical... Uh, understanding of like how good his fighters were based on video footage because you know it's all fuzzy and and so forth you can determine like this is where it gets into sketchy territory because it's like i don't want to bash sugar ray robinson and i don't want to praise floyd mayweather <laughs> both of those aspects are absolutely true with how i feel right now but the thing is, like, uh, we have in the sport, we have a certain immortalization of figures uh, that we bring up to hero status just because of who they who they were in the history books. And so 
you read a certain fucking summary on these these guys and you feel like you know them as well as you know the modern fighters but that's just simply not true so granted i have a great degree of uh respect for the fighters who are in the history books Unfortunately, I feel like I'm too naive and I don't have the grounds to look at past fighters with the certain objectivity that I have to look at the modern fighters. And so to say who is the the greatest pound for pound, it really just comes into hero worship at that point. And so I don't feel like I would be qualified enough to to give like, you know, an assessment. But I could say within modern fighters, and with that stated, obviously Floyd Mayweather would be up top five, I'd say. Yeah, I was going to say, I knew when we talked about him in the past that you had him like somewhere in that top five, top ten kind of range. So that's Yeah, these days I'm a bit more like cynical on the whole like choosing uh, a top of history, you know. It, it kind of falls in line with the whole like, uh, who do you rank higher, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Exactly. You know, they're from different generations. Right. Exactly. I was just thinking that. I was <laughs> Playing your game again. <laughs> so many people love to do the, oh, LeBron is better. And sure, LeBron's an all-timer. I get that. But, you know, we watched the Last Dance documentary about about Jordan and the Bulls last year. And it's like, you know, he's, I'm sure, I, I know Jordan's 20 plus years ago now, but it, people today who weren't even alive to witness Jordan. It would be like me say, or like I recognize Muhammad Ali's greatness without even being alive during his era. And it's like, I know how great Ali was. And speaking of Ali, you did not have him number one all the time, right? No. I mean, like I just said, Sugar Ray Robinson tends to be the consensus for top pound for pound. You look at the guy's rating and like he's, he's been in with so many killers and, uh, you know, back then they were having fight after fight after fight after fight after fight. There wasn't as much business involved when it came down to promotion that they have these days, which makes it so that, like, you know, it's kind of like inflation, you know. Yeah, a dollar right. meant something different back in the days. These days, it, uh, with boxing, it'll take so much time just to get a fight fucking made. But back then it was it was, you know, grinding the gears up constantly, like having fight after fight. And so you'll have guys that that were just in it. And it certainly was a completely different sport back then. So whether or not it ventures into the territory of being apples to oranges, I, I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, uh, you know, fighters are fighters. But um Really, when it comes down to it, like going back into the 50s, it's going to be different than the 60s. It's going to be different than the 70s. And it's going to be different than 2000s. And as far as like uh, Muhammad Ali, his career, too, was, you know, just about as impressive, though not as quantitative as Sugar Ray Robinson. Like Muhammad Ali, even if for some reason somebody like, you know, wants to think ill of Muhammad Ali, it it tends to be their ignorance speaking. Because uh, 
here you have this guy who was he was able to defeat Sonny Liston like early on to get the uh, heavyweight title, and Sonny Liston to put into uh, comparison was like you know the Mike Tyson at the time. He would often beat fighters before they got into the ring by his sheer intimidation and so there were like i was talking about before the whole hype aspect you know the hype aspect developed a certain uh terror uh within the fighters who would go up against sonny liston and the thing that muhammad ali was able to take advantage of was his brashness his confidence like his ability to just believe that he is that golden person that he sees in his mind. And he had that like brimming confidence going into the Sonny Liston fight. And that's something that Sonny Liston wasn't used to. And that started kind of like the, the legend of Muhammad Ali after that fight, because, you know, nobody was supposed to beat Sonny Liston, just like nobody was supposed to beat Mike Tyson. And then the thing was, once, uh, once Muhammad Ali smashed that narrative, once he got rid of uh, Sonny Liston, then the piranhas wanted to feed because it's it's kind of like whenever you have a wild card, like whenever you have this uh, this guy who's dominating the division, you don't really know until one person actually makes a statement and defeats that person. Then it's kind of like everybody else in the division comes alive and they're like, all right, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't sure about beating Liston, but maybe I can beat this new guy. And so Muhammad Ali had to deal with that with tons and tons of killers, tons of guys that, and that was the golden age of, of uh, heavyweights. You had tons of names that came in and he he pretty much beat them all. If you're looking at Muhammad Ali's career, main thing is that you got to look at how rich the heavyweight division was at that time because uh that was able to build his reputation on its face because hey, you got all these killers in in your division and you continue beating them like it, it was in, it was insane. He he was a product of being part of one of the most like glamorous heavyweight divisions, and so it's undeniable that uh, because of the opposition he was against, and because of the victories he was able to achieve through that opposition, that he has to have he has to be up there as far as uh, pound for pound rating in history. When I was watching that fight last this morning between Porter and Spence, one thing that I thought was interesting was the fact that Porter gave Spence his first ever cut, and he's been fighting. He's had, what, 28 or so uh, career fights now mm-hmm. that he's won, and I just thought that was interesting that he had never had a scratch or cut before now or before that fight. I found that interesting, too. I Yeah. Again, it gets into the whole myth aspect of boxing. It's like... I've never been cut before, so that means that I'm invulnerable, <laughs> you know? Obviously, it does mean something. It means that the the person has sound defensive 
abilities or the person is able to end fights early to the point where he doesn't develop the uh, prolonged damage to his skin. But yeah, it, it is one of those cases where if you've become a fighter who has never received a cut or if, like in in Rocky, he mentioned how his nose was never broken. You know, there, there are just like things that that fighters are like proud of, you know, I've never received damage there or there or there. It's akin to like a person bragging about never having been to the hospital or never like broken a bone, you know. It's it's kind of like this uh, facade of invulnerability. But the thing is, whenever if if it hasn't happened throughout your career, and then suddenly it does happen, then you know it creates a new narrative, and it's up to you. It's up to your own psychology as to whether or not to apply any kind of meaning to that, you know, because you as a fighter. It's like, you know, am I going to be, uh, am I going to act any different now that I received my first cut? Or am I going to continue, uh, you know, being the fighter that got me here in the first place? And so it is one of those, those challenges, one of those psychological challenges with every fighter where it's like, you know, the first time it happens, you never know what it's going to be like, but it's more just like, Hey, Am I going to prescribe any kind of meaning to this <laughs> right now in this moment, or am I going to fall apart? <laughs> you know, that's really what they should be thinking. I guess it feels so obvious that it seems like taking punches, you're going to get a cut at some point. But then I guess it's just like anything where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. you didn't get injured or you did get injured, basically, as, as right. minor as it is. And the thing is, when he got a cut, it was a clash of heads. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't like through a punch. Usually what causes cuts through punches is, uh, quickness, like, um, punching speed. And so, I don't know if, uh, if a boxer says I've never received a cut before, it is also kind of like, yeah, well, you know, up your competition, get that cut, (laughs) you know, I, (laughs) Or, I mean, it could also have to do with, like, if you have, like, angular features, like, uh, in your, like, eye sockets, if you're, like, uh, brow, uh, like, the the orbital bone, if it's kind of sticking out, you're more prone to getting cuts around there. Same with cheeks, if they're, like, jutting out a bit, you're more apt to get cuts because it's you don't have, like, the padding as much. You know, it's it's all just, like, visual when it comes down to it. But I mean, the one thing though, that actually means something is if you've never received a cut and you receive a cut for the first time and it happens to be over like the brow area, blood's going into your eyes. Are you going to be able to still fight, you know, with the same spirit that you had before? Because now you're experiencing something new. See, that's, that's, that's really what it comes down to. You shouldn't be proud over the fact that you've never received a cut because that creates more question marks. And when you have question marks, you know, that creates self-doubt. And when you have self-doubt, uh, your punches might not be thrown when uh, they otherwise would be. 
I mentioned before, I asked you what you thought the memorable fight was, uh, and you mentioned Corrales Castillo. Any other fights that you remember? I'm trying to remember. Um, like, the the ones that come to mind instantly were, like, the Mayweather fights, like, against Pacquiao, just because I remember we were watching those yeah. fights, or I'm trying to think of, I feel like, I know we watched, like, Tim Bradley a lot, and that was, like, after, of course, when I remember people were just like, oh, Pacquiao got robbed but then I started realizing or you were telling me how good Bradley yeah. was and I do remember the champions of boxing and I'm trying to remember the name was it yeah Vladimir Klitschko Klitschko yeah was dominating the heavyweight division around that time I just remember some of those names and those fights that we would watch there was a long era uh of modern heavyweights where it was just um Vladimir Klitschko and Vitaly Klitschko the Klitschko brothers they were dominating the heavyweight division because it was so uh so kind of bankrupt with talent but once again it was kind of like hey you know these guys are showing up to work and they're uh they're delivering every single time they get in the ring so you really can't uh bash them for that if they're dominating the sport but see, the thing is, like, the fan base, they tended to have uh, kind of a stigmatized notion of the Klitschko brothers as being boring, which is kind of interesting to me because it's like, you know, you got these guys who are tactically brilliant and you go into the sport that's considered the sweet science and you're, you're not going to value the science that they bring to the sport now see i i get it some people consider it the sweet science other people consider it uh prize fighting you know they they consider it like something where they want a spectacle they want a knockout they want blood and guts and uh something that's a like action-packed affair whenever you would get like a klitschko fight he had the reach, so he would work the jab. Any fighter who would get within his jab inside the pocket, he would clinch. He would clinch. He would walk the fighter to where he wanted the fighter to be in the ring. And he, you know, put downward pressure on them in order to sap their stamina. And being big dudes, it, uh, it saps stamina pretty quickly whenever something like that happens you know i can i can i can empathize or sympathize with the whole hey they're boring aspect of it but they knew the sport they knew what they needed to do in order to win and to me i thought that it was interesting enough to figure out and to to see how they'd figure out their opponents to the point where you have these big guys you're a big guy but um, you're able to enact your style to a point where it's able to achieve victory. And so that was my general opinion of the Klitschkos. But then there were amazing fights, though. When a fighter was able to get beyond those, like, uh, physicality advantages, like, um, did you ever watch the Anthony Joshua versus Vladimir Klitschko fight. It was kind of recent. It was, it wasn't like, I mean, recent for me, as in I took like a year and a half off from watching the sport or so, but like, uh, the Anthony Joshua fight here, you, you got this guy that was brimming with youth 
and you had Vladimir Klitschko, who was an elite. And uh, Vladimir Klitschko was so used to being able to use his style to keep the opponent at bay, kind of like sap the strength of keep them on the outside, outbox them, do whatever within his ability to win, kind of like a whole uh, uh, Floyd Mayweather situation. Eventually, Vladimir Klitschko got old, and he no longer had the legs, and so it kind of slowed down. And I think that the absolute best quality of a Vladimir Klitschko fight was when he faced Anthony Joshua, where here you have this guy who is youthful, has athleticism, and is able to negate some of the uh, stylistic advantages that Vladimir Klitschko has. And there was just kind of that sweet spot where Vladimir Klitschko, sure, was right about retiring age, probably even beyond retiring age. And it was at the point where, talking about that sweet spot, it was at the point where... Vladimir Klitschko had lost against uh, Tyson Fury in a uh, points decision. And here you have Anthony Joshua, who is an athletic, uh, youthful type, who is able to assert himself in a fight against a guy who otherwise would make it boring. But, like, when you get, like, a Vladimir Klitschko, who has done all of this, has gotten who had gotten comfortable with winning, um, who had lost hunger, but then lost in a rather disappointing way against Tyson Fury in a points decision, goes up against Anthony Joshua, who is actually hungry, who has a style that uh, is very exciting. And Vladimir Klitschko puts on himself that he wants to make a statement that fight in itself had a lot of fireworks because Vladimir Klitschko was able to just put himself out there. He was taking risks that in previous fights he wouldn't have taken risks, and uh, it made the fight extremely exciting. As for where Anthony Joshua is now, I have no idea. I don't even know if he's a world champion, given my naivete about the sport right now. I really do think that that was one of the best heavyweight fights in uh, the modern era. After uh, Mike Tyson, there was kind of the Klitschko era, but whenever you get fights like Lennox Lewis versus uh, Vitaly Klitschko, that was an amazing fight. And then if you look at uh, Vladimir Klitschko versus um, Anthony Joshua, there was that same exact excitement. And I think that the main thing is, and as a, an appreciator of the of the sport, I'm not as much of an appreciator of the heavyweight division as most people tend to be. But I have to admit, whenever you get fights like that, whenever you get a fight where it's one behemoth versus another behemoth that doesn't look like they're just sloppily throwing punches around. Looks like they actually got a brain, you know, in their skull. Whenever that actually happens and 
it doesn't seem like one Neanderthal versus another Neanderthal. I love the heavyweight division. It's just that that's far and few between, few and far between. Sorry. <laughs> Again, he had he had great fundamentals and athleticism. The thing with him, and uh, the thing that could also be said about Klitschko, is that they didn't have a chin. Like they, uh, if they got caught, they could be on the ground. It's always a question mark. Both Anthony Joshua and Vladimir Klitschko had susceptible chins. And um, that fight in itself, I remember the moment whenever Klitschko knocked down Anthony Joshua and Anthony Joshua got back up and then he was able to knock out Klitschko. It was one of those amazing, you know, setups where it's it's just like as a viewer, you're watching the fight and you're expecting things to be a foregone conclusion and tides turn to the complete 180 of what you thought they were going to be. Those are the most exciting moments in boxing where you're so certain that one that the narrative is supposed to go a certain way. And then suddenly it goes the opposite of that way that you were expecting it to. Do they not still do the Friday Night Boxing on ESPN? Friday Night Fights is gone. It originally was with Joe Tessitore and Teddy Atlas. And Teddy Atlas was kind of expunged from the sport. He was always uh, telling truth to power. He was always the the person who was um, challenging the uh, corruption of the sport. And, you know, he was rocking the boat. He was always saying his mind and uh you know the higher ups they don't like that as soon as there's a voice challenging uh the way things are then you know they're going to come up with any excuse under the book to get rid of the guy i forget what what specifically it ended up being that jettisoned him off of the sport but it wasn't anything more extreme than any of the other things he had done prior it was just kind of like hey now the networks are saying or now the commission is i don't know who exactly it was but they were just like enough's enough this guy's a problem we gotta get rid of him and so when teddy atlas was gone there was kind of like a sourness just having joe tessitore without teddy atlas they were such a good combination together I mean, granted, now you have Joe Tessitore still, who I think is, oh my God, he has to be, like, I would say he's probably the best commentator for enthusiasm purpose, (laughs) for purposes of enthusiasm. It's kind of funny because he either does boxing or he does horse races it's between those two sports and it's it's amazing to think about because it's like that's what he brings <laughs> like you know if there's a horse race and there's uh you know this horse who's not supposed to come in front i've never seen any of the horse races that he's commentated but i can imagine he does the same voice that he does whenever a guy's just about to you know fall onto the canvas and get counted out. <laughs> so I, I know him from either boxing or like you said, horse racing, but also college football. Oh yeah. 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 And he also spent some time in the uh, Monday night football booth. Remember with Gus Johnson, where one time he was like, the Flintstones are here. Yeah, I, 
<laughs> and we I never understood what like, that meant. <laughs> there's no way that, but like, there's no way that he didn't say that. And we both thought that he said that. And we were both quoting him. But then there was kind of like the whole like, <laughs> why can't we find it when we were searching back, <laughs> trying to find it? And it didn't exist whenever you... We were like seeking through the timeline, trying to find, <laughs> and the Flintstones are here. <laughs> because I remember that, like, that, like, just uh, threw us through a loop, and we were just like, <laughs> did he just say the Flintstones are here? <laughs> I feel like I was like Googling that, like, surely I'll find something about this reference. <laughs> oh, yeah, but no, it was just a dream. <laughs> like, it was. It was a dream we both had. He probably said something super coherent, and we were just like, Flintstones, what? <laughs> yeah. I just remember Gus Johnson's enthusiasm for, like, March Madness. He'd be like, oh, but, yeah, it just seemed like he had the perfect enthusiasm for boxing, yeah. but I guess it just took some time for him to yeah, kind of get going the, with that. The problem going from sport to sport is that if you have enthusiasm with the sport, it tends to mean that, you know the sport incredibly well. You know what to get enthusiastic about. And so if you're super enthusiastic about one sport and another sport is just kind of maybe something that you had been watching casually here and there, how like you have to get the knowledge before you can actually feel something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, okay, there's nothing more primal than just seeing a guy get knocked out. It's something that all of us know in the signature of our species that as soon as somebody gets knocked out, it means something. Obviously, Gus Johnson can scream his lungs out <laughs> whenever he sees a guy getting knocked out. But then, you know, when it comes down to nuance, he had to learn that. And so he, he couldn't exactly bring the whole March Madness thing to boxing from the get-go. But it was an interesting thought, like... I think that the whole idea of bringing him in there was because they wanted him to scream because they wanted him to bring that enthusiasm to the sport. But the thing is he needed to learn what to get enthusiastic about. And so there were some growing pains. Okay. So one thing I know you told me this in the past, but I haven't looked too into it on my own, but it's kind of like, all right, there's the, there's the, all the different like the welterweight like all the different belts that you can win or like a boxer can I guess fight for so like I guess explain the the different classes or the different so there's like the classes, sanctioning bodies right and then there's sanctioning bodies yeah. yeah so there are tons there's like IBO WBO WBF uh, the I don't know if I I don't know if WBF is something, but I know that WBA is something. Uh, yeah. Alphabet soup. Tons and tons of different sanctioning bodies that uh, ultimately mean when you're a world champion of a weight class, it can be one of any of those sanctioning bodies. Um, and... If you get more into uh, trying to become the undisputed of that weight class, it ultimately is, you know, 
it's like Pokemon. You got to collect them all. You got to get all of those belts in that specific weight class. And it's like, you know, it's an impossible effort, but some fighters have been able to, you know, what they call unify the belts, getting all the belts in a weight division and become the uh, undisputed champ of that weight division. You know, it, it, uh, it gets a bit messy because, um, like, whenever you have that belt, it's you tend to just like fight those who are in that sanctioning body, and you have to draw up contracts. As far as I know, you have to draw up contracts outside of that sanctioning body in order to face somebody from an outside sanctioning body in order to, you know, get their belt. And so it, it gets really chaotic, really messy because it's like, you know, are you actually the, the world champ of that weight class? You know, there are other world champs too. What does world champ actually mean if you're not the world champ? Oh, well you have to be the, uh, undisputed champ. So there's not an easy answer. It's just alphabet soup. You have all these different sanctioning bodies and you get a belt and you try to collect belts. And at some point you'll probably either, if you, you gained a belt when you're a bit younger, you'll grow into another weight division and try to get another belt else you won't really be uh, relevant at that weight class because your body is no longer able to sustain that weight loss. <laughs> you know, all of these little nuances are to factor in as far as like, are you the world champ of that weight class? Because, you know, there are tons of belts, tons of like intricacies of uh, one weight class to the next. The sanctioning bodies have they they cover all of the weight classes so like there's going to be an ibo for every single weight class and wba for every single weight class they're just sanctioning bodies uh as far as you know it's it's kind of like privately owned you know so there there are privately owned uh um owners of all weight classes. And so whenever a boxer fights the IBO champion, they're uh, specifically the person who's the mandatory challenger in the IBO organization. Um, So that's, that's kind of how the system works. Like IBO has its own like set fighters who are, mandated to uh fight the owner of the belt eventually you get that and then you eventually i think uh have the leeway to challenge another fighter who's in a different organization so it it ultimately is messy um but every weight class has its has several organizations and it's consistent from weight class to weight class. It's not like heavyweights only have the IBO 
or whatnot. It's it's all weight classes have the same organizations, but there are several organizations like privately owned organizations that run as far as like the title holders, all very like privately owned type stuff where they're they're setting you know certain nuances to the rules of contracts and that's really ultimately what it comes down to it's it's not much having to do with the actual nuance of the sport itself it's more just contracts and boring shit so i mean if there was any way we could make it specifically just one organization one title holder that would be you know pie in the sky but it's not going to happen the way that capitalism works yeah i guess it was like when spence won that fight and then um garcia was like yeah he's the champion now i want to take him down he's the top dog you know it was kind of like all right he's the belt holder and i want that belt now Mm -hmm. yeah that that tends to be what it is like you make your defenses you make your title defense within your organization so if there's a person who's kind of like worthy enough to challenge you that's not enough unless there's enough backing from the organization itself deciding hey they're a part of this other organization but this will get asses in the seats maybe we can drive up the price and make it so that the contract will work to our benefit and it's very slimy (laughs) like when it comes down to it it's the as soon as you get in the privately owned organizations, it's kind of like a disgusting nuance to the sport, but it is what it is. Yeah. That was pretty much all the boxing stuff. We covered a ton. That was like a lot of the, that was awesome getting all your insight and everything that you had, your wealth of knowledge. Yeah. Anytime that there's a match that, um, you know, you're interested in and watch and want to get like, a secondary person's account of it and uh you can't find anybody better than me (laughs) go ahead and call me back (laughs) like i said anytime you want oh yeah this was fun